Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. It has been a challenging morning uh, around here, and uh, some of you who will be watching this delayed will know that, but uh, because we trust in the Lord, we just continue to press on. Um, into all kinds of fun things. And so I'm going to ask you, if you got your Bibles, if you would uh, get them and out and open them up to Matthew chapter 11. Many of you know that, that Kathy and I, we like a good whodunit mystery. And recently we've been watching this, this British uh, broadcast show uh, called Wycliffe. And it's a kind of a police detective show. And I'll just go ahead and tell you the language is sometimes difficult for me to to, to understand all the time, but the language is tame. It's uh, a pretty tame show. It's not one of those shoot 'em up kind of police shows uh, either. Uh, actually, very few guns ever get drawn. Uh, it's not what some people would think of as exciting necessarily. Um, but a few of the shows have had some really decent plots with a twist or two, and trying to figure out who done it can be a little bit of a challenge. In an episode we watched the other night, there were some signs that were pointing into one direction as to who the, this killer might be. And then once all the signs were kind of revealed, it, it really made it impossible for Inspector Wycliffe to not be able to know with certainty who the killer was. He, he just knew. And so we've been looking at a series of signs from the Old Testament, from Old Testament prophets, their predictions, their prophecies, these kind of prearranged events that identify the coming of Messiah God. And it's not just a few of these now, it's, uh, it's revealed signs, over, over 300 that we've talked about. And we're not looking at all 300 of them, but just highlighting some of these. And one thing that has become just extremely uh, obvious is that God wanted to ensure that it would be impossible to not be able to identify Messiah when he came. He wanted, he wanted us to know for certain, so prediction after prediction was made. For example, the prophet Isaiah said that he would be born of a virgin, and he was. The prophet Micah said that he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem, and he was. Hosea, the prophet said he will be called out of Egypt, and he was. And see, when you start putting all those puzzle pieces together, you have an unmistakably accurate kind of composite picture of who Messiah would be. Well, one of the descriptions about what this Messiah would do is that he would perform miracles. That miracles would be one of the authenticating, confirming signs that this, this was the one because he could perform miracles. In Isaiah chapter 35, it, it says the, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now all of these were predictions that Isaiah made. And then there were so many others uh, who, who did that. And they were looking about the day Messiah would come, and they just knew you'd be able to spot him. Many of you have heard of the discovery of the Dead Sea 
scrolls back in, in the 1940s, the scrolls that were found in these desert caves around Qumran, which is by the Dead Sea. And archaeologists tell us that they were placed in those caves in these clay pots before the time of Jesus. One particular document found in, in the archaeological dig in cave number four uh, found a scroll that was actually entitled The Messianic Apocalypse. And it, is, uh, it has been dated to have been copied uh, in the first century B.C. and placed there. And it describes the anticipated ministry of this coming Messiah. It says this, For he will honor the pious upon the throne of his eternal kingdom. He will release the captives. He will open the eyes of the blind, lifting up those who are oppressed. For he shall heal the critically wounded. He shall raise the dead. He shall bring good news to the poor. Now, that was an extra-biblical resource, but it basically said the same thing. Now, when Jesus came on the scene for his public ministry, almost immediately miracles happened. We know that he fir his first miracle was the turning of, of water into wine in Cana. It's recorded in John chapter 2. You can read about that later today. He, he healed people who were sick. He raised people who were dead. He controlled the forces of nature, calming, calming storms on the sea. And, and he, was, he was so well known for his miracles that even his enemies, people who disagreed with him, were forced to say, something is up here. In our four Gospels in the New Testament, 35 miracles are recorded that Jesus performed. But those weren't the only ones that Jesus did. In fact, the gospel writer John, as he's closing his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, in John chapter 20, verse 30 says this, the disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. Now, one of those who believed Jesus was the Messiah of God was a guy who was named John the Baptist. And we're just going to call him JB for short today. Y'all okay with that? JB. And so John the Baptist, JB, pointed to Jesus and believed that he was the one sent by God. But in the 11th chapter of Matthew, J.B. John finds himself in prison. And he's not going to get out. And I personally think that John knows it. He actually ends up dying in, in prison. And while he's there, he struggles. He doubts. His faith gets shaken. It's rocky. So, so much so that he needs to get a question to Jesus. He, he needs to find out what, what's going on out there. And we're going to read that in just a second. But I, what I want to do is take this opportunity to say we're going to look at really the first six verses of, of this 11th chapter of Matthew. And I want to point out three truths regarding faith of devoted followers of Jesus. And I want to do it in the context of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they're really simple but I think they're really important. And the first is this. Devoted followers of Jesus wrestle with their faith. Devoted followers of Jesus wrestle with their faith. If you have your Bibles uh, open, look at me with, with me at Matthew 
uh, chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse 1. And it says this, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Verse 2, Now when John, now this is John the Baptist, J.B., uh, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame they walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. Now, John the Baptist is this forerunner of Jesus. And if you've ever heard of a forerunner, you know it's the guy that kind of runs out and heralds the news that somebody is coming. J.B. pointed to Jesus and said, he's the guy, he's the one, he's, he's the Messiah. J.B. Was, he, he was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he was no slouch himself. John the Baptist, he, he was predicted in the Old Testament just like Jesus was. And this is what Matthew is pointing to in verse 10 that we, we read a minute ago. He's quoting the prophet Malachi from the third chapter when he says, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So here, here's John. He's predicted in the Old Testament along with Jesus as the one who would point to Jesus. And J.B. knew this to be true because we, we see him out baptizing in the River Jordan and People are just coming out in droves, religious leaders. And they start asking J.B., who, who are, you? Are, are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the promised one? And J.B. says, nope, I'm not. It's not me. Somebody else. I, I know who it is. And, and so they ask him, well, well who are you? And, and, and J.B., he quotes Isaiah 40 about himself he says i am a voice crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god he was quoting right out of the old testament you, you can read all about that later on in john chapter one if you want to so jb says i'm not the one i'm just the messenger but he pointing at jesus he's the word i'm getting people's attention for him I'm just kind of a, a, a lowly road sign crew member putting up signs saying you need to follow him. Now, J.B. was a very uncommon man. But he ends up having a very common misconception. A, a misconception as to how the Messiah would lead. 
Let me unpack that for, for just a second. See, Jesus you know, said something that we read a second ago in verse 11, and he's talking about J.B. He's talking about John the Baptist. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, none has arisen greater than, than John. That's a, that's a pretty good credential to have Jesus say that about you. But he was an unusual guy. He was a quirky dude. I mean, if you know the Bible, you know, he, he was a little eccentric. He, 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 he was kind of homeless in the desert. You know, we, we know that he, he ate bugs. He, he wore animal fur, animal skins, the Bible tells us. PETA would not be a fan of John, just, just so you know. They, they wouldn't be a fan. He was just kind of different in so many. He was different in his approach to, to preaching. I mean, the dude called everybody out. I mean, he called everybody out. He would walk up to somebody and say, hey, you, you, you need to repent. The kingdom of God is coming. You better repent. He would just call people out. And that actually is one of the reasons he ends up getting in trouble. Now, let me again just give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of who he was and where he came from. His dad's name was Zacharias. His mom was Elizabeth. Both of them were up in age uh, when he's born. Uh, JB's dad, Zacharias, he worked in the temple. He was a priest in the temple. Um, Again, his mom was Elizabeth. She had never had a child. She was thought by many to be infertile past the age of, of bearing children until one day, while Zacharias is in the temple kind of doing his temple duties, he's burning incense or something, an angel, angel Gabriel shows up on the scene and he says, uh, hey, Zacharias, your, your wife is going to have a baby. You're going to have a little baby boy. You, you can go back and read about the whole story in Luke 1 if you want to. And well, Zacharias um, saw the angel, he knew it was an angel, but he didn't believe him. And so he asked for a sign, and you know, you can just kind of see the angel getting an attitude that, boy, you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to be able to open your mouth for, for nine months. Here's your sign. Now, during this time of silence in her house, Elizabeth is growing, obviously. The baby in her is growing, it, it, it's showing herself. And when she's in about her sixth month of, of pregnancy, her cousin Mary comes up to Jerusalem from Nazareth, and if you know that story, she's already pregnant miraculously by the Holy Spirit. I hope you know that story. You can read about that one too. But anyway, she goes up to visit her cousin Elizabeth in Jerusalem, and as soon as Mary walks through the door, Elizabeth said, oh my goodness, something just happened. In Luke chapter 1 verse 41, she said, the baby leaped in her womb. Immediately when when John the Baptist in his mother's womb is, you know, in the same space with Jesus, obviously he's excited to meet Jesus. His mama says the, the boy is jumping up and down, you know. And uh, th- th- then can't, comes this day when J.B. is born. It's a great day. And remember, Zacharias couldn't talk, but it's always the father's responsibility to name the, the, the child, to give the name to the child, even if his wife, you know, made him, you know, say what name. He still is the one that has to legally kind of do it. So when they, when, when they say, what's his name going to be, he has to get the writing tablet out, and he writes down, his name will be called John. And when he writes those words, he can finally speak. Later uh, in John chapter, I mean in Luke chapter 1, we see Zacharias giving a blessing over his son. And he says this, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high God. 
for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Do you notice Zacharias is speaking powerful words over his son? This is not, this is not the point of the, the message today, but please hear me say this. Parents, your words have power in the lives of your kids. Whether they're words that build up or words that tear down, they have power. And I would encourage you to do like Zacharias did. Speak words of encouragement, words that build the kingdom into them, words that prepare them, words that, that, that take them forward into serving in the kingdom of God. So what Zacharias spoke over his son happened. He grew. He became the forerunner, pointing the way, preparing the way for the Lord. Something else kind of interesting about J.B., and it's this. J.B. and Jesus were cousins. We know this because Mary and Elizabeth, we know, were first cousins, which made J.B. and Jesus second cousins, which they knew each other. They, they went to family reunions together. Probably when Mary and Joseph came up from Nazareth to festivals and feasts in Jerusalem, they probably stayed with Elizabeth and Zacharias. So they, the, the boys would have played together. And I always, I've always kind of considered, man, this really adds authenticity to John's claims about who the Messiah is. Because how many of you would say, hey, my cousin, that dude's God. My, my cousin, he's the one that's going to take away the sins of the world. Now, most of us would probably have to say, my cousin, they add lots of sin to the world, you know. But, but John is saying, no. My cousin is different, and I just believe that authenticates John's message. John is absolutely convinced that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one of God. But again, something happens to John. Ticks off the wrong political figure, King Herod's son to be exact. He publicly calls him out, calls him to repent of a horrible sin. And Herod has him thrown in jail. And again, that's something you can go read about in detail in Mark chapter 6. J.B. stays in prison uh, until he's beheaded, until he dies. But while in prison, and and some believe that he was probably there for about a year, he starts to doubt. Somehow he's hearing about what's going on with Jesus and what Jesus is doing. And, And he thinks... All that's going on out there while I'm wasting away in jail. I just imagine this is what he's, he's thinking. You know, I'm the, one, I'm the one that told everybody, follow him. And everybody's following him now, but what, what about me? Jesus is out there doing his thing. So John begins to doubt because the expectations he now has are being unfulfilled. Re- remember I said John had, he was an uncommon man with a very common misconception. Well, the misconception The misconception was this. When the Messiah comes, he was going to first immediately set up his kingdom because it says so in the Old Testament. But it really didn't say that he would do that first. It does say he'll set up a kingdom. Now, J.B., he he knew the prophets. He he was aware that Daniel 7, verse 27, said that the the Son of Man would, he would establish this everlasting kingdom. That phrase, Son of Man, is uh, synonymous with the Messiah. So J.B. is in jail. And I think he's probably going, okay, where's this kingdom? Where's this kingdom? 
And I probably, you know, thinking that he's having thoughts like this, you know, didn't Jesus announce in Nazareth, you know, I heard about his speech up there, that he'd come to set captives free? Didn't he say that? I mean, in front of witnesses and a synagogue? That he'd come to, to set at liberty those who are, who are bound? Well, what about me? I'm, I'm, I'm bound. Where's, where's that liberty for me? What's up with that? Didn't he say he came to set captives free? Well, I'm still here. I'm, I'm rotting in this stinking prison. And so, so John doubts. You know, I, I remember my first real struggles with faith after, after coming to Jesus. You know, I, I, I struggled. I, I had surrendered to, to Jesus as my Lord and Savior about a year and a half earlier. And then I went off to college at College of Charleston. And I had some professors who at some point I remember thinking, these guys get up in the morning and their, their mission now is to just completely undermine my faith. That's, what they're, that's all they're here for. That, that's what they've come to do. And I, I, it started gradually kind of wearing me down. And I started having some doubts in and wondering, you know, was all this really true? And I wrestled and I struggled. But here's what eventually happened. My doubts, my doubts became stepping stones, let's say to a stronger, sustaining faith. See, it was that same year when I went through my very first study of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. And the combination of my personal struggles while studying the powerful words of the prophetic voices for God was working to forge in me this very strong, sustaining faith. Now, now something else, I'll talk more about it in a minute, but it's, it's not unusual for leaders like like J.B., and we see this in Scripture, to have times of uncertainty. You go back and you study the life of Moses. Man, he, he doubted his calling. Jeremiah, the prophet, he wanted to quit and never speak another word for God. Elijah, the prophet, just said, God, come and, and just kill me. I want to die. So as I go through the Bible, I find these great giants of faith from time to time struggling. In fact, maybe this will encourage you if you go through the new testament and you you study the word doubt you're one of the things that you'll discover is on most every occasion i think it's actually every occasion except for one that when this word doubt is used it's always about believers not not about unbelievers for instance jesus said to peter in matthew chapter 14 oh you of little faith why'd you doubt that, that, that phrase, little faith, that was actually a, a title that Jesus gave to the 12. He would refer to them often as you little faiths. Right after the resurrection, uh, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is not far from ascending back uh, to heaven. And the Bible tells us in verse 17 that they, they, they came and they saw him there and they, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I mean, isn't that wild? I mean, people who probably saw him die now see him raised again, and they're struggling with it, you know, with, with, with faith. So it's almost as if, it's almost like you have to believe before you can really doubt, that you have to invest. You, in other words, you have to buy in so that you can 
finally be challenged to believe in. That's not, that's not an uncommon experience. And, and, and let me just, here's an example of kind of how this works. You find a believer who is faithfully serving the Lord year after year, and then suddenly something tragic happens. Maybe something like the loss of a child. Or, or the loss of freedom because of some debilitating disease. And that person at some point is going is to stop what they're doing and they're going to look up and go, where are you? Why, why, have you? why have you allowed this? Where are you when I, I need you like I need you? And again, historians, theologians believe that John had, his ministry lasted probably about 18 months pointing people to Jesus. Thousands of people were drawn to this charismatic guy out in the desert. Their lives were being changed by him. And now suddenly he's in this prison pit, a, a, a dungeon. And again, estimated about a year. And J.B. starts down and he starts wondering. And I bet, I, I'm just, I'm going to guess that even right now, maybe today, that some of you who are going to be watching this, maybe you've been having doubts. Or maybe right now in this moment, you are having doubts. You're there at home and what may have begun, you know, a couple months ago to feel like you were in prison over the last eight weeks. And you, you start to feel uncertain about your future. You start to feel uncertain about the future. You start to wonder about the future of your health and the health of your loved ones. You start to wonder about the, the, the health of your job. Your, your vocation. You start to wonder about the health of our, our nation. And you're, you're, you're there, you're listening, but you wonder, you know, all that Christians say about Jesus, is it really true? You, you start having doubts. If that's you, let me say it differently. When that's you, I want to encourage you to do the very same thing that J.B. did when he had doubts. And that was he took them straight to Jesus. That's what he did. He just took them straight to Jesus, you know. Now, he couldn't get out of prison to go do that, so he sent some trusted friends to asking the questions. Remember the questions? Are you the one? Are you really the guy? Or should we be looking for somebody else? Now, I love the fact that with his doubts about Jesus, he goes to Jesus. He just says, I want to know is it you? I want to know, are you really, are you really the, the one? And, and please, let, let, me, let me just encourage you, if, if you are doubting. You know, you can, do, you can do lots of studies, you know, all kinds of resources out there, Bible studies, lots of books you can read. But the very first thing that I would encourage you to do is take your doubt to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. And I want to I give a stronger challenge around that. Here's, a, here's how I would encourage you to do that. It's a 21-day pathway. It'll cost you about 10, 10 minutes a day to invest for 21 days. But here's what I would encourage you to do, because I believe you'll begin to see your life filled with hope and joy again. Here's the challenge. Read one chapter out of the Gospel of John every day. One chapter out of the Gospel of John every day for 21 days. 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. And while you're reading, ask just one kind of simple clarifying question. Who is Jesus? 
or if you want to refine it more, who, who, is, who is this Jesus that John, uh, the apostle, is writing about, claiming that Jesus is? And then just kind of wait and see what starts to happen in your heart and your mind. So because even devoted followers of Jesus at times wrestle with their faith, you're going to wrestle. Additionally, devoted followers of Jesus reason through their faith. Reason through their faith. In verse 4, Jesus has this answer to give to J.B. And he gives it to those who brings, brings him John's questions. And Jesus says to them, you remember this in verse 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. You know, after asking, it, 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 he says to them. Now, notice that the answer was not a simple yes or no. It, it's not, Jesus, you know, the, the question comes, are you the one? And Jesus didn't, didn't, he didn't just say, yup. That's how my son used to answer me when he was a teenager, you know, yup. Um, it, it was just this single kind of word. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus appeals to two things. The first thing that Jesus appeals to is their own personal experience. He says to them, you go tell John what you see. You go tell John what, what you're hearing. You go tell John your personal experience. And then the second thing that Jesus pushes towards them with his answer is, he points to biblical prophecy. Personal discovery and the powerful word of biblical prophecy can unite to sustain and strengthen and build a strong faith. And Jesus gives this list of things that were mentioned in the Old Testament prophets. And I'm just convinced that those two pathways are, are evidences that they're vital for a strong, growing faith. There's this subjective element that's about your experiences. Then there's this objective element, which is outside the range of your experience that you can study and come to with confidence. There's the evidence that verify your experience. So the first, first one here is personal discovery, your own experience. Go back and tell John what you saw, what you heard. Here's what that tells me. Your personal story has power. Your personal story with Jesus matters. It's one of the most powerful tools you have in your armory of spiritual faith. If people start asking you questions about your faith and you just start to, to answer, here's what I would encourage you to do, to say, well, I want to talk about that. Before, but before I, I, I start walking down answering some of those questions, let me just tell you what happened to me. Now, you're going to have to go back and, 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 and answer some of those, but let me tell you what, what my life was like before I met Jesus. Let me tell you how I, I came to know him, what, what transpired, and let me tell you what he's done in my life since then how he has transformed me. See, you have that story. You, ha you have that story. Tell that story. And again, you'll have to do more later, but begin by telling people what Jesus has done for you. I remember the very first time I heard a personal testimony about Jesus. I was um, a junior. School had just started. Uh, I was a junior in high school. This was actually before I trusted Christ personally. 
and I was invited to an FCA meeting. And uh, while in the meeting, a, a senior football player from another school had come uh, to the meeting, and was, he was telling his personal story. He told about what his life was like before he met Jesus. He told um, how lonely he felt, though he was considered to be popular in his school. He always felt lonely. And so he would just do things. He would just kind of do things to go along just to try to fit in. And he talked about how coming to know Jesus helped him kind of escape from the party scene that he knew was, was killing him. And he talked about how now Jesus gave him hope and life and joy. He didn't take away all his struggles, but his life had changed. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and confess my sin that day to you. While he was saying all those things, I was sitting in the back silently scoffing at him, kind of mocking him in, in, in my mind. But that, that young man was used by God to water a seed of the gospel that God had already planted in my heart. And I remember to this day how impactful that ended up being. You know, it was subjective. You know, it was, it was his story. But man, it, it was powerful. Notice what else Jesus appeals to. He appeals to the word of God. The powerful, spoken, prophetic word of God that we have recorded. And he gives this list. He says, the blind receive their sight. Matthew chapter 11, verse 5. The blind receive their sight. Lame can walk. Lepers are cleansed. Deaf hear. Dead people raised up. That would be really cool on a preacher's resume. What, what, what have you accomplished in ministry? Here's my list, baby. You know, it would just, he, he goes on and says, and the poor, those who are cast aside, the, the gospel's preached to them. Now, why does Jesus point out those things? I think it's because he knows it would impact John. Because he knew that J.B. knew his, his Bible. He knew that J.B. had a, a special affection for the prophet Isaiah. Because John the Baptist would, would quote him. He knew that he knew those prophecies. Prophecies like in Isaiah 35, which declares, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He knew about Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the living God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He, he would have known that. So Jesus said, you go back and tell John those things. Tell him what you see. Tell him what you hear. Tell him that here's the message, and here are the miracles to back up, to authenticate, to prove that I'm the messenger. I'm the one come. See, when it comes to miracles now, folks, one of the things that I have discovered is that we normally make one of two mistakes. We either normalize them, and when I say we normalize them, it, 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 basically what we do is we often take this term, miracle, and, and just make it common in our use. You know, we'll say something like, you know, every baby that's born is a miracle, and I get that. But did you know that there are going to be about 10,500 babies born today in the United, just in the United States? Today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. And so I get that it's miraculous in some ways, but it's also a common occurrence. It just is a common occurrence. You know, 
I've witnessed some beautiful sunrises, you know, out at the beach. And sometimes I start, oh, it's a miracle, and there's something miraculous about it. But guess what? Happened today. It'll happen. To, it's, it's a common experience. See, a miracle, by definition, is an uncommon event. It's something extraordinary. You know, I, I hear people at Christmas time say, I got, a, I got a parking space at the mall right up front. It's a miracle. Well, no, it, it, it's not, not really a miracle. See, we, we tend to normalize miracles. The other thing that we tend to do is trivialize them. We either normalize or trivialize. Somebody says, well, it's, you know, it's, it's right here. The Bible says there's this miracle. And then you get this kind of snooty person, you know, this, this kind of know-it-all attitude, and they just kind of politely smile. And, you know, they say something like, well, that's just merely a primitive interpretation of their experience because they didn't have the scientific knowledge to describe it like we do. You know, they, they, they just kind of dismiss it. There, there's no power in it. Now, I've personally come to love what the once atheist unbeliever who became a very strong believer, C.S. Lewis, said about miracles. He wrote a book about miracles. I strongly encourage you to read that, that little book. But he says lots of profound things uh, about miracles. He said lots of profound things about a lot of things. But I remember walking away, and I try to do this when I read the book. I try to summarize it in a sentence or two so that I, I can keep that in my mind. And I remember walking away from, from that book just kind of with it in my head. If God exists then miracles can be real. If God, then miracles. If there's a God who can act, then acts of God can exist. If a supernatural being exists, then supernatural acts can happen. For instance, if Genesis 1-1, what does Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Dude, if that can happen, everything else in the Bible is a cakewalk. If God can do that, everything else is pretty easy. If God, then miracles. Now, even if you don't believe in miracles, if you say they're, they're not possible, if you, know, if you believe they, they never really happen, if you're one of those especially who believe that you know, life simply, spontaneously begun from non-life, as most evolutionary naturalists do, then here's the deal. If, even if that's you, you already believe in miracles. If you believe that life spontaneously erupts from non-life, you already believe in miracles. I mean, just, just think about it. So turning water into wine is no big deal if you made water from nothing. Multiplying loaves of bread from just four or five loaves is nothing if you can make grain from, from nothing. And, and please, please get this. Though God established natural laws, God is never captive to them. He, he never has to obey even his own laws. He's established natural laws. It doesn't mean that he can't come along and say, hey, I need to do something to fulfill my purposes here. I'm suspending this one, and I'm going to do this miracle. And, and God's even allowed us at times to come to understand how to transform some of his physical 
laws that he's put in place. We, he's given us the ability to supersede some of his, the law of gravity. What goes up will come down. But the law of gravity can be overcome, superseded by aerodynamics and thrust. Anybody ever seen a C-17 sitting on the ground about to take off? You, you just kind of think, ain't going to happen. Have you seen the, the Boeing Dreamlifter? That big old fat thing, you, know, you think short wing, I'm thinking, ain't going to happen. What about a space shuttle? There's no way that million ton thing's going to get off, off the ground. But it does. Well, if we have the capacity to do that, and if God, then miracles. See, God can do something anytime he wants. And I'm, I'm just saying, at least think through this, reason through this. Let your faith be a reasonable faith. Your faith doesn't always have to get hijacked or ransacked by things around you. Your faith can be rigorous. Your faith can be reasonable. And I want to close with this last truth about the faith of devoted followers of Jesus. Devoted followers of Jesus remain in their faith. They remain in their faith. Look at, look at verse 6 of Matthew chapter 11. It's, it's the last message that Jesus had for John. Look at what he tells him. He says, tell him what you hear, tell him what you see, tell him about the miracles, but then, verse 6, and blessed is the one, tell him this, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Some translations say not offended because of me. Now that, that word offended is the word scandalizo, and it, it literally means to cause somebody to stumble or bait a trap, to, to entrap somebody. And it's a gentle rebuke from Jesus to his, his cousin. Jesus is saying, hey, JB, don't let this stuff trip you up, man. You're my cousin. I love you. Don't get hung up on this. Don't let your doubts defeat you. Because what I told these guys that you sent me, it's, it's evidence enough for your heart. Even if you don't understand everything else that's going on, there's a lot you do understand. I know there's some you don't. I know you're suffering in prison. But Jesus says, I've given you enough evidence, subjective evidence. I've given you enough objective evidence to keep your faith tied to me. Jesus is saying, John, don't be offended if God doesn't do everything you want. John, don't be offended if miracles are happening all around you, but none of them ever happen to you. John, don't be offended if people are being set free out of that prison you're in and you're never set free. Don't be offended if dead people get raised and you die in jail. See, what Jesus is saying to John, he says to us, there's a lot of stuff going on in this world that we don't understand. There's some things we know we get, but there's a lot we don't get. But never, ever give up what you know for what you don't know. Always go to the place of the evidence. And when you get there, stand firm there. Stand firm there. And that means you got to let God be God while you're being you. 
Even though the things in your life are there and you can't figure them out and you don't know what it's going to look like, there's enough evidence to believe that God is. And if God is, then he is big enough to handle everything that you can't figure out. So here's my encouragement to myself, to you. Let God be God. Let God be the one seated on the throne who gets it all, and you and I just be the ones who gather around the throne and bow ourselves to him, surrender ourselves to him. See, he's the one. He's the one in charge. And so if you're struggling, if you're struggling today with matters of faith, then you're in really great company. You know, some of the best and brightest believers in history were those who struggled with their faith. Believers like C.S. Lewis. Believers like a guy named Josh McDowell. A, a man by the name of Francis Collins who was the head of the Human Genome Project. My goodness, Lee Strobel. He was this former hard-nosed, antagonistic, atheistic reporter for the Chicago, Chicago, <laughs> Chicago Tribune. And he tried to actually disprove Jesus, but came to be a devoted follower. That great old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, is once reported as having said, I suppose no man is a firm believer who has not once been a doubter. So all of the prophecies we've been studying, all of, you know, all of these incredible odds to, to, that are fulfilled, none of them are so incredible that they are a big challenge to an endlessly incredible God. If God, then miracles. So I'm hoping that through this series that we're all building a bolder faith so that, you know, in these unprecedented times, if you find yourself wrestling with your faith, keep reasoning through it. And eventually you will come to a place of rest so that you are able to remain in it. Let's pray together. Father God, we come in the powerful name of Jesus right now. We come giving thanks for your grace. We come giving thanks for your mercy, for your power. We thank you, God for the subjective experiences that many of us have had with Jesus. We thank you for the objective truth that you've given us in your word. We thank you, God, for so many ways that you prove yourself every single day. We thank you because the truth is we doubt sometimes. We wrestle with our faith. And so, God, we are grateful this day that you have given us paths to reason through those. And now, you may be watching today and you may be one of those people who, who has never believed. You just doubt it all. And I want to challenge you to take that 21-day challenge just every day. Read one chapter of the Gospel of John. If you don't have access to a Bible, you contact our church. Um, you can email us. You can call our, our number. Um, it's just simply the word connect. Uh, if you call 843-CONNECT, you'll, you'll get our church. And we want to send you a Bible. We want you to be able to read for yourself the gospel story about Jesus written by John so that your faith could be made firm. 
But it starts with experience, a personal experience, with you just going to Jesus like, like his cousin did, taking his doubts. So if you have doubts, you just take them straight to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I am a person of unbelief. Help me. Help my unbelief. And the Bible says he will. If you call on his name, trusting him, he'll help you. So do that today where you're at. For others of us, many of us watching, we just need to wrestle in our faith and know that it's okay. And do it reasonably. Do it looking at the evidence that presents itself and the testimony of those that God has put in your life. And then remain in it because you will find rest in Jesus as you do. Lord, we come to you now. We come to you as a community of faith. We come to you, God, as believers who all of us struggle. And there are days that some of us feel like we're in this furnace, this fire, and we see, God, your face. And then there are others of us who are standing outside looking at somebody in a furnace, in a fire of of, of struggle, and we see, God, them experiencing your power. And we want that kind of faith, the kind of faith that allows us to stand firm in a fire of struggle on this earth. So, Lord, we come now to you. We come bringing you everything. We come trusting you with our financial resources. We bring them, God, uh, that that tithe to you. We come bringing our, our, our doubts to you. We come bringing everything we are and have to you as we come to worship you as a community. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.